welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka here with a member of the Amar family and also with Akil Amar. Hello, yeah. Akil. How are you? Good. So maybe we should call this one Amar Amarica's Constitution or Amarzica's Constitution or something. Uh, I think I think we're we're scraping the bottom of the barrel on Amar puns um, these days. But you guys had a, had a, a much better one, which I'll quote, uh, you know, in in a minute. But uh, what I'm getting at here is that we're we're very lucky today to have a special guest, um, uh, Professor and Dean uh, Vic Amar from the uh, Illinois College of Law. Hello, Vic. Hello, both of you. Nice to see you and hear you. It's great to have you here today, particularly because of your some of the areas of expertise that, that you have regarding the Senate and confirmations, and of course, another area which we're going to get into, we've, which we've teased in our previous uh, podcasts, having to do with uh, an issue that's coming up before the Supreme Court uh, soon, and, uh, and unfortunately did uh, 21 years ago or 22 years ago and is rearing its ugly head once again. Um, I'm talking about some uh, issues from the notorious Bush versus Gore case and what's now known as uh, ISL theory. So we'll get into that uh, later on. But first, let me, let me tell our audience a little bit about, about Vic. Um, Vic's uh, formal title is the Iwan Foundation Professor of Law and Dean of the Illinois College of Law. And uh, just some background, Vic attended uh, UC Berkeley undergraduate and then uh, got his JD from the Yale Law School, where he was the articles editor for the, uh, for the Yale Law Journal. After that, he clerked for Judge William Norris on the Ninth Circuit, and then for Justice Harry Blackman uh, on the United States Supreme Court. After his clerkships, he joined uh, Gibson, Dunn, and Crutcher, uh, and spent three years there uh, before he entered the academy uh, at the University of California in 1997. Uh, he was then within the California system uh, at Berkeley, Hastings, and for many years at uh, the UC Davis School of Law, where he became professor and senior associate dean before moving on to Illinois, where he's uh, been ever since. Uh, professor Moore is widely published, including uh, numerous books, case books, law review articles, media appearances, newspaper columns, you know, you name it. Um, for example, um, he's the uh, co-author with Steve Calabresi and Akil of an upcoming six-volume treatise on constitutional law. Um, he's an elected member of the American Law Institute. He's consulted for the U.S. Department of Justice, the ACLU of Southern California, and the National Association of Attorneys General, among many others. And suffice it to say that he's a distinguished public servant, a leading scholar, and a public intellectual. Uh, he and his brother, Akil, have co-authored many pieces. And together with uh, Neil Katyal, they wrote an op-ed during the 2020 presidential campaign in the midst of numerous election law cases, which we've discussed on this podcast, and uh, which, who knows, you know, may have had an impact on the proper execution of the election. Um, the brotherly collaboration included a several-year period when they had a regular feature on what's now uh, Justia called Brothers-in-Law, and you can find the entirety of that collaboration on our website, akilamar.com, along with many other resources. So in the end, I think we all have, have an enormous amount to learn from my friend, uh, Dean Vic Amar. So welcome, Vic. Thank you, Ian Andy. 
Okay, so let's let's get right into it. Um, this week, the uh, confirmation hearings of uh, Judge Katenji Brown Jackson for Associate Justice of the United States Supreme Court are going to get underway. Um, and I think we want to, you know, address some issues. This is a constitutional law podcast, so we, I want to, you know, take it a little bit uh, higher than the level of discussing, you know, what. Uh, Judge Jackson said when she was on the sentencing commission, you know, and so forth, in, into some some perhaps larger issues. Um, uh, and Andy, if I can just jump in, uh, Vic please. is. Uh, uh, it's especially fitting that we have Vic. He is um, a, 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 an expert on the the Senate and its constitutional role. Generally, he's written in particular about the appointment process, but but this one's particularly um, interesting. It's the seat on the court. Um, that um, uh, was once held by um, actually Joseph Story, whom you've mentioned, and Vic and I are working on a on a treatise along with Steve Calabresi um, uh, that uh, was initially um, crafted by jo- Joseph Story, a very great Harvard scholar. That seat later um, was occupied by Harry Blackman, uh, for whom Vic clerked, and actually in the movie Amistad, Blackman actually plays the role of Joseph Story. That seat then um, was filled by uh, none other than uh, Steve Stephen Breyer, Justice Stephen Breyer, for, for my clerk back when he was um, in the Court of Appeals in Boston, the United States Court of Appeals for the First Circuit. And of course, that's also um, the justice for whom uh, nominee, now Judge uh, Jackson, uh, clerked. So <laughs> there's, there's some interesting um, harmonies here uh, to have uh, um, Vic and me uh, uh, talk about this. When Blackman announced his resignation way back when and, and uh, Breyer was nominated, Vic and I actually wrote a piece together. I think it appeared in the Hartford Current or something, actually, uh, about this um, passing of the baton from one of our judges to another of our judges. Did, uh, did Justice Blackman ever talk about the, his confirmation process? Did you ever get any insights from him on what it was like in those days? You know, not um, in any depth. He he did have a habit of referring to himself uh, in a very self-deprecating way as as old number three, because you'll remember that, like Anthony Kennedy, after him, Justice Blackman was the uh, the third person the president nominated for the seat that he ultimately held. There were a couple of false starts there, uh, and uh, Clement Hainsworth and, and uh, Harold Carswell, I think, uh, and. Uh, he did actually talk about a camaraderie that he had with Anthony Kennedy because, of course, uh, Justice Kennedy was the third person nominated for the seat that, that he ended up holding after uh, Judge Robert Bork's nomination failed. Um, and then uh, there was one in between involving uh, Professor uh, Ginsburg that, uh, that also found him. And, and Andy is, of course, connected to that. That's true because my, uh, my daughter-in-law... Uh, Saren uh, clerked for Judge Ginsburg, um, and just just about a year and a half ago finished that clerkship. So that's right. So I actually have something to say here. <laughs> Amidst these Lineage experts. is 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 common to all of us. Do you have a sense of? Uh, of course, you, you've been on the inside one way or the other. Um, you know, back since 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 those days. Um, do you have a sense of how the confirmation process has? Has changed. Is it quite as drastic a change as the, as it appears to those of us on the outside that, that make it seem like just a crucible that uh, that a justice has to go through now, as opposed to perhaps in the past it was 
just a little bit more of a rite of passage? I do think the process has changed tremendously. Uh, it used to be uh, much more genteel, not perhaps quite pro forma, uh, but the very idea of these uh, live uh, televised dramatic hearings where the senators get to show off for the folks back home uh, and asking their pointed questions. Uh, that's really something that is only during my adult lifetime. Uh, in the 60s and 70s, when, when Justice Blackman joined the court, uh, there was much less public attention paid to the, the confirmation process. Uh, and, and uh, you know, I think there are there's certainly opportunities for public education that have arisen because of the changes, but uh, not all the changes have been to the good, probably, either. I mean, there's been, there tend to be certain memes that are uh, recited during these hearings, such uh, some people will say, generally those of the same party as the, uh, as the nominee or of the president that nominated the, the, uh, the judge, will typically say that, well, really, we should just be considering, you know, whether, sh- whether the, the nominee is qualified, you know, on, on a sort of a strict, you know, academic basis or something like that. Whereas uh, then the other side will say, no, you know, we need to look at the, this policy question and that policy question and this legal theory and that legal theory. And then the, and then the judge themselves uh, tends to say, I'm not going to answer this, I'm not going to answer that, because I might uh, appear, uh, I might have to, uh, you know, hear a case that has to do with that. Um, are any of them right? Well, I think those who argue that uh, substance ought play no role in a senator's assessment of a nominee are not right. That, that uh, a, a nominee's approach to judging uh, what he or she thinks is the right way to understand the Constitution and past rulings of the Supreme Court, that's got to be part of the inquiry. Uh, the Senate, after all, is an equal partner in the uh, uh, process of of filling vacancies to the Supreme Court. To be sure, presidents take into account the ideology, the philosophy, the interpretive approach that um, particular nominees have when deciding whom to nominate. And there's no reason why the Senate can't and shouldn't do the same thing. Uh, Now, having said that, I should add that, you know, nobody is going to share each senator's particular vision of the Supreme Court and what it should be doing. So if if a senator says to herself, I'm going to confirm only those nominees who feel exactly about each past case and about the Constitution the way I do, that's the recipe for never filling vacancies. So it's going to be up to the Senate as a whole and each senator, I think, to decide how much uh, weight to give to particular views that um, nominees uh, share. But I think in general, it's perfectly appropriate uh, and, and a good thing that the Senate is, is a, a partner in this process where it's looking at the merits, so to speak. To be sure, credentials matter as well because someone has to be able to handle the workload and has to have the right experience. But experience and resume without um, uh, any assessment of, of what someone's approach to judging is an approach to constitutional interpretation is, I think, is, is incomplete. Now, you're certainly right, by the way, Andy, to suggest that nominees have done a, a, a great, um, uh, if by great you mean successful job, in avoiding answering any questions on the merits. And, and that's understandable. What A nominee has very little to gain and a lot to lose 
by actually sharing uh, his or her views on on controversial issues. But this notion um, that a nominee can't share views on a past Supreme Court decision because the issue may come back up in front of the court, and therefore it would violate principles of judicial ethics for the nominee to to, uh, weigh in, I think that's quite silly. Uh, justices themselves weigh in in every case in which they they uh, decide. They write uh, dissents. They write concurrences. They're not disqualified from reconsidering those same issues when the, those issues recur on the court. The distinction that I've tried to draw, and I think it's actually one that Akhil has tried to draw as well, the distinction is between um, an empty mind and an open mind, and relatedly between a promise to vote a certain way, which a nominee cannot make, uh, versus information that would inform a prediction about how someone might vote um, uh, in the future, recognizing that the person might change uh, a, a mind um, uh, once they see all the briefing, et cetera. So Vic made at least four points that I want to highlight, um, at least four. One is a structural argument of a certain sort, that the Senate is the partner of the president. The president can nominate uh, and the Senate uh, has to give its advice and consent, and it's a kind of a double key system. You don't get the job unless the president is for you and the Senate is for you. And um, structurally, Vic says, the sorts of things that the presidents can and do take into account um, should be equally valid for the Senate to take into account. Okay, so that was one point. It's this kind of a structural point about partnership. And he paired that with a sort of second point that, that presidents do um, take into account uh, the likely voting uh, pattern of a nominee. They, they make predictions about how someone is inclined to rule. So if the president can do it, then the Senate can do it. Now, um, I want to add to that, that that goes all the way back, actually both points, to, to George Washington. Half the country basically voted, uh, close to half, uh, voted against the Constitution. And yet all of Washington's nominees for um, the Supreme Court and virtually all of his nominees for lower federal courts came from the pro-Constitution, the the Federalist side of the aisle, rather than the anti-Federalist side of the aisle. Later on, John Adams is going to pick mainly Federalists. Um, Thomas Jefferson, um, when he's in power, is going to pick mainly Jeffersonian Republicans. The first time that a president openly crosses the aisle in making a nomination, um, uh, once the political parties emerge, is Abraham Lincoln. And at the time, when Lincoln nominates Justice Stephen Field to the Supreme Court, who was a Democrat, the real issue in Lincoln's mind is not actually Republican-Democrat, it's are you loyal to the union or not. Remember, he, he picks as his own vice presidential running mate, or um, at least he allows to be picked as his own vice presidential running mate in 1864, a war Democrat, um, Andrew Johnson. So those two points, um, what's sauce for the president is sauce for the um, Senate. And from the beginning, presidents have kind of taken into account not just uh, credentials, but um, um, uh, jurisprudential vision and and predicted um, voting. Those are two big points that he made. Um, A third point that he made, and I I agree with, is uh, this distinction between a prediction and a promise. A promise violates, in effect, judicial ethics because you're promising 
to vote a certain way, and that's inconsistent with judicial independence once you're confirmed, okay? The po- process of appointment is more political, but once you're on the court, it's, it's more a judicial process, and any kind of promises uh, are impermissible. Um, but predictions, Vic says, you know, those are uh, okay. And the one thing that he, his fourth point is, is bogus to hide behind any kind of judicial ethics norm just because judges all the time, justices are telling us what they think about the case at hand, which has implications for what they're likely to think about the next case and the case after that. If I can, I can just build on that for a moment. I've written that if you are allowed to ask only questions at such a high level of generality that Antonin Scalia and William Brennan answer the question in the same way, then you're not getting very much useful information from the question. I think it was Justice Kagan who uh, said, you know, we're all originalists um, uh, during her confirmation hearing. Uh, Ich bin ein originalist, because (laughs) who's going to say, I don't believe in the text uh, and what it meant in historical context? Uh, It's silly to say, to ask, are you an originalist? Do you believe in original meaning? Do you believe in precedent and stare decisis? Uh, Because everybody at some level believes in these things. The only way to get a sense for what kind of originalist or what kind of precedentialist a nominee really is, is to ask him or her, here's a case from the past. Here's the majority opinion. Here's a dissent. Here's a concurrence. Which of these do you find the most convincing and why? So, you know, I've written that the best way, if I were a senator, I would pick 10 or 15 cases and I would ask the nominee to tell me from the past not hypotheticals, actual published Supreme Court opinions, and ask the nominee to uh, tell me which side she or he thought was uh, the right side in, in, in resolving each of those past disputes. I mean, you know, when, when you're doing that, I think at, at some level, you alluded to this in your answer earlier, you're trying to form a prediction of what's going to happen when the justice is on the bench. And so you may not be asking them about a particular case that they're going to sit in front of, but you're trying to find out what the answer is, you know, anyway. And so I think that the some people, um, when they think about confirmations, they don't draw a distinction necessarily between the con- a con- a judicial confirmation and let's say a, confir- a confirmation of some nominee for some cabinet post or something like that, or even a sub-cabinet post. Um, so if the Senate is asked to confirm, you know, the Undersecretary of Energy, you know, or something like that, that may not be a heavily political position in their mind. And they may may be making that decision on a, basically a credentialed basis. It does this person. You're you're from Texas. Fair enough. You care a lot about oil and gas. I I understand. But, but there are, there is a certain level where, where, where there's a technocracy that's, that's coming into play here. Sure. There are political overtones, but not at this, not, you know, at this level of minutiae, I think. Um, and certainly not for, for every senator. Um, so so I, I guess what I'm getting at here is, is there a difference um, with, with judicial appointments um, as opposed to, you know, the others? Maybe not a, you know, a, a fundamental difference, but it could be a difference in kind. And also, isn't there really uh, some democratic overtones um, when we talk about the confirmation hearing. So the Supreme Court's not elected, but the senators are and the president is. And 
certainly one factor in the election of the president and possibly to some extent election of senators is the the public may choose to vote for someone that they think is going to support Supreme Court candidates that are acceptable to them. And when people talk about a loss of legitimacy on the, uh, uh, of the court, in part I think that, well, they say, look, you know, the, the Democrats won, you know, six out of seven presidential elections and, it's, uh, and you know, two-thirds of the court are uh, conservative. You know, so, so there's, there's a mismatch here. And so, the, so it's an undemocratic institution. If that, if that is a concern, then it seems to me that trying to see whether someone is going to vote, you know, in, in a, the general realm of one's party seems like a, a way to repair that democratic deficit. So a, a number of points, I think, that you touched on. First of all, I do think there is a difference in kind between cabinet appointments and executive branch appointments generally on the one hand and uh, appointments to the judiciary on the other hand. Uh, It's not just as you point out that maybe those executive branch appointments tend to be more technocratic and credential focused. It's also that because we have a basic unitary executive structure in the Constitution, people appointed to the executive branch are part of the president's team. They're, they're supposed to be in line with the president because they're doing the president's bidding. Uh, whether it's one rung down in the cabinet level or two or three rungs down, those people are supposed to be aligned with the president's general outlook with respect to law enforcement, et cetera. That's not true for people in the judiciary. They're not part of the president's team. They're independent. They're separate referees. That's why they enjoy uh, a tenure during good behavior or so-called life tenure. Once they are confirmed, Uh, They don't owe their existence and their job to the president in the way that people in the executive branch uh, can be fired uh, uh, if if they they don't toe the line. So so there's going to be a different attitude there. And senators, I think, historically have been more deferential to a president's appointment of executive branch officials compared to um, uh, judges, especially Supreme Court justices. Relatedly, justices are going to, and judges are going to outlive any administration. They're not, they don't come and go with the administration. They're going to be there for several administrations. So the stakes are higher. Uh, and so it's, I think it's more important for the Senate to get a clear sense of what the likely voting pattern uh, or track record may be going forward. Now, you mentioned that um, elections have consequences. You didn't use that term, but that's kind of the shorthand that a lot of people do use. Uh, Are you I, saying I, that I, I was verbose in my comments? No, not at all. Uh, <laughs> my question. Uh, the, the one problem, uh, and this is actually something I think Akhil has given uh, even more thought to than I have, is elections have consequences, but elections are also kind of arbitrary in the sense that uh, departures on, on the Supreme Court don't fully align with electoral results because the justices get to decide when they want to step down. So um, the the makeup of the court um, doesn't always track the outcome of of presidential elections, even in a lagging way, because some some people might be president uh, for four years or more and get very few picks, and some people might be president for four years and get three picks. Um, uh, So so there's not a perfect alignment there. But even given that imperfection, uh, I do think it's important that the Senate and the president uh, both assess the, the, the philosophy of the nominees um, so that people understand that when they vote in presidential and Senate elections, uh, that, that, uh, that this is one of the big issues that they're voting on. Uh, again, I come back, though, to one other point. 
you can't push this so far, I hope, that you never get someone confirmed when the president and the Senate are of opposing parties. And, and, and I fear that, that we are in that kind of a moment. Another guest on your show from the past, uh, Ed Whalen, he, he wrote a little post that I, uh, I saw this past week uh, in which he um, laid out uh, uh, what he, he thought uh, the strong case for taking uh, philosophy into account and not just looking at a nominee's credentials. Basically he said that, that old-fashioned credentials only focus is gone no matter what. Um, and he thinks that's probably a good thing. And, and as I said earlier, up to a point it is, but unless there's going to be some attempt by senators to reach some middle ground with the president uh, by asking, for example, if not this nominee, then who else? Who, uh, uh, if, the, if the Senate's going to say, I'm not going to confirm any nominee that I wouldn't have nominated myself, and the Senate and the president are opposing parties, you're going to have, you know, a shorthanded court for much of the time. And that's a structural problem. If I could just um, offer one little historical tidbit that supports the the general distinction between uh, the Senate's role when it comes to executive branch nominations and the Senate's role when it comes to judicial nominations. It says advising consent and it doesn't, the text of the constitution doesn't make a distinction, but other parts of the constitution do distinguish as Vic began to identify Um, other parts of the constitution do make a distinction between let's say cabinet officers um, and, and uh, judicial figures because other parts of the constitution make clear that a president, for example, can fire cabinet officers at will, which means that when the president leaves an incoming president of a different party, um, will be able to pick his or her own team. Um, and that's not true when the incoming president comes in um, uh, vis-a-vis the judiciary because they have tenure for good behavior. So um, other parts of the Constitution create um, different um, structures and relationships between presidents and executive lower um, uh, executive officials on the one hand and judicial officials on the other. So here's the little historical tidbit I wanted to give. And this has been true forever. Um, as late as, ni- as 1830, so more than 40 years into the system, um, the Senate had yet to turn down, you know, any of um, uh, the president's basically top cabinet candidates. Um, and they, um, whereas they had already turned down three um, Supreme Court nominations, and they, um, um, all the way back to George Washington, in fact. And, and, you know, you don't say no to George Washington lightly, but they did turn down his nomination of, of, of uh, John Rutledge. And so by 1830, three presidential nominations to the Supreme Court had failed. Um, Senate was less deferential. No cabinet nomination had yet failed. And there were actually um, many more cabinet nominations than Supreme Court nominations in, in that period. So the Senate from the beginning has understood, yeah, it says advice and consent, but our role is different when it comes to lower executive branch um, positions on the one hand and uh, judicial positions on the other. Now, for similar reasons, which we haven't begun to talk about, um, but Andy, which you might um, want to inquire about, um, we might ask whether it's the same Senate role for lower federal court uh, nominations on the one hand and Supreme Court 
combinations on the other? Are there structural differences that call for a different Senate role even um, within the judiciary? Well, I think we should discuss that. And actually, I wanted to mention something about uh, about that in another context, which was um, when uh, Vic was talking about, you know, pulling up old cases and saying, you know, asking the judge about it, not necessarily old cases of the judge. But when the judge is serving on the lower court, they may make a ruling which might be at odds with something that they might rule subsequently when they're on the Supreme Court, right? Because their role is different. Uh, perhaps you could g- explain a little bit about the difference of the role of a federal judge on, on a, let's say, appellate court, as opposed to, since after all, you clerked for judge on the Ninth Circuit, so that's a you know a, a high court, but a lower court than the Supreme Court. Um, you know, can you foresee uh, you know a situation where a judge had served on that court would rule a certain way in that properly in their role, and then comes on the Supreme Court and, and would rule differently in a, in on a related issue? Oh, to be sure. Indeed, sometimes judges on the lower court will say that. Uh, I'm not sure that it's their place to to announce that, but sometimes they do. Uh, the key difference, of course, is that. Um, this notion of stare decisis uh, or binding precedent um, can be broken down into two dimensions. One is vertical stare decisis. That is the obligation to follow past Supreme Court precedent that lower federal courts um, have to adhere to. And that's pretty rigid. Uh, No matter what you think of a Supreme Court ruling um, uh, as being right or wrong, Indeed, no matter what you think about the likelihood that that Supreme Court ruling will change because of changes in personnel on the Supreme Court, if there is a ruling that's kind of directly applicable to the case at hand, if you're a lower court judge, you have to apply that Supreme Court ruling, whether it's whether it's it's, it's not long for this world and whether you think it's right or not. And Vic I, used the words vertical because he's, he's saying it's a lower federal court and the Supreme Court. There's the Supreme Court and their inferior um, courts. And, and that's, that's, the either, that's the term the Constitution uses, uh, courts inferior to the Supreme Court. Inferior to, doesn't mean that they're bad or not, not, not as smart, but their position is different in a pyramid, in a hierarchy, and so they are below the Supremes, and so that's what he means by vertical precedent. You're bound by your boss. Now, the other, the other element, the other aspect in which we often talk about stare decisis is a horizontal or temporal one. And there we're talking about the respect that the Supreme Court owes to past rulings of the Supreme Court on that same horizontal plane. And as we all know, that kind of stare decisis is much more flexible, much more ni- manipulable, and rightly so. If, if, if the court today could not revisit and correct wrong-headed rulings from a court a while ago, you couldn't have the kinds of rulings that we celebrate, like Brown versus the Board of Education, which overturns Plessy versus Ferguson. We couldn't have the cases from the 1960s, 50s and 60s that apply the Bill of Rights against the state and local governments, because many of them involved overruling past precedents. So, so horizontal stare decisis is much more nuanced and much less binding than vertical stare decisis, which goes to show the different uh, institutional role that lower court judges play. Now, I don't, I'm, I'm not diminishing the importance of uh, members of the U.S. Court of Appeals. They do a lot of really important work, and there's a lot of issues that never get resolved by the Supreme Court, so that many important legal issues in the United States are resolved 
uh, in the final uh, uh, respect, or at least for long periods of time, by the U.S. Courts of Appeals. But it cannot be denied that the biggest, most important, most far-reaching, most symbolically uh, significant cases are those that are rendered by the nine justices in D.C., and so uh, when, when you're considering someone for that particular court, um, it's, it's a distinctive ballgame. So to translate that into, you know, the current situation, so you have a, a judge sitting on a lower court, or on, let's say, you know, Judge Jackson sat on a federal court, and case comes up, and she rules on it based on what the Supreme Court has said, even though she may personally disagree with that ruling. Now she's on the Supreme Court, and a similar issue comes up, she may now vote contrary to how she voted as a, as a lower court judge because she no longer is bound by that. Or she might recuse herself. But, but if she didn't recuse herself, then she, that, that might happen. Right. And, and as a general matter, just because one has uh, uh, opined on an issue as a lower court judge is no reason to recuse oneself when that issue recurs uh, uh, if, if, if the, the judge is now on the Supreme Court. Uh, there'd have to be much more uh, um, uh, personal stake for, for, uh, for there to be recusal. But, but the, the hypothetical- Just on, on that, just to connect to what you said before, um, you know, when they, although nominees sometimes hide behind judicial ethics things, a Supreme Court justice writes an opinion in case X and, um, and someone else dissents. And, and when those issues recur, um, of course, the, the, the justice um, who wrote the majority opinion and the dissenter don't feel obliged to, to recuse um, when the issue comes up in a slightly different incarnation. And, and yet again, so given that that's true horizontally, as it were, it, you know, the, the same principles would, would be true vertically if, a, if a, uh, it can't be a basis for a recusal that you've thought, of, that you've thought about that, this issue before in a judicial context. And therefore, it can't be, in fact, a good argument oh, uh, um, for not answering um, a, mm-hmm. a, a good question. Oh, well, that might come before me uh, by the, uh, when I'm a justice, and, and so I, can't, I couldn't possibly um, tell you what I think about uh, this case or that one. But I think it's important for us to keep this in mind with the confirmation hearings coming up because it's possible that Judge, Judge, Judge Jackson could get asked, well, you know, you ruled this way uh, on this case. Um, and, uh, you know, how do you, you know, square that with this you know, article you wrote or this thing that you believe or whatever, whatever it might be? And th- this would be a reasonable thing for her to say. She wouldn't be just, you know, pulling it out, you know, uh, of, of nowhere, you know, to say that. Right. And without my weighing in on Judge Jackson in any specific way, I can say as a general matter that a judge could reach decision X as a lower court judge and then be elevated to the Supreme Court and uh, decide that uh, X is wrong uh, and vote not X uh, as as a Supreme Court justice and be perfectly correct both times. Because when you're a justice, uh, and you think uh, a past decision is wrong, unless there's been a lot of reliance interest built up around that past decision, there's a good argument for correcting that mistake. So you vote not X. But as that lower court judge, because X was the law of the land when you were a lower court judge following Supreme Court precedent, you did your job. So not only is it not a problem, you know, in many instances, it's, a, it's, it's, it's evidence of, a, of, 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 uh, of institutional professionalism. So you said that, you just used the phrase the law of the land, that something is the law of the land because the Supreme Court said so. Um, but now we have a situation 
where, and, and the implication there is that lower court judges are obliged to rule consistent with the law of the land, to obey the law of the land, to, you know, et cetera. And that's part of the definition of the law of the land. Okay. But now we have a situation where in Texas, a law mm-hmm. is passed, which is clearly, you know, uh, 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 violative of the law of the land, if the law of the land is defined as what the Supreme Court has said. Now, that, that case, that law was passed because of an expectation that that's not what the Supreme Court is going to say. Yeah. Um, and we, uh, so first of all is, I, I think I know your answer to this, but part one, is it legitimate for a legislator to act, for a legislature to act in that way? And part two, would it therefore also be legitimate for a judge to act that way? To say, okay, you know, here's what the court said, but actually they're not, number one, I don't believe that's what the Constitution says. And number two, I don't believe that's what the court is going to say. So it's a very nuanced uh, and interesting uh, scenario created by this Texas law uh, that uh, gives a private right of action against people who facilitate uh, abortions. Uh, And you rightly point out that on on the merits, the Texas regulation of uh, abortion seems quite inconsistent with the Supreme Court's uh, statements about uh, reproductive autonomy rights and in, in, in forget Roe versus Wade and in, in Casey, um, which is kind of the, the guiding framework. The reason why this law is kind of causing real world headache and heartache for a lot of people in Texas is that it's enforced primarily in state rather than federal courts. So you asked earlier, you know, is it legitimate for a legislature to pass a law that seems to flout uh, U.S. Supreme Court interpretation of the Constitution? I think the answer to that in the abstract has to be yes, because you always have to give the court a chance to revisit past precedent. Forget abortion. Let's take it out of that realm. Um, In in other realms where the court might have uh, overly conservative past rulings, Um, uh, legislatures from blue states have to be able to uh, uh, pass laws that provide test case opportunities, if you will. So there's nothing inherently problematic about a legislature passing a law that seems in tension with what the Supreme Court has has said, especially, as you know, when there's some reasonable question about what five votes on the Supreme Court think the the, the approach ought to be going forward. That's, I think, the key point here is that they believe they ever... Not, not that it's required, but they have a, it would be an exercise in futility if they didn't have a reasonable belief that the court might, you know. I think that's right. I think that's right. If, 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 if Casey were, were um, clearly supported by a supermajority of the court, then both state and federal court judges acting conscientiously would not in, implement this Texas law. It's only because Texas state court judges who are not part of that vertical ladder, that uh, that pyramid that Akhil described, because they don't answer directly to the Supreme Court because they're part of a different system. The, the U.S. Supreme Court does not exercise supervisory power over state court judges the way it, oper- uh, it, it, it uh, supervises lower federal courts. That opens the door to at least the possibility that a state court judge could say to herself, if I think that the U.S. Supreme Court is moving in a different direction, and I think that's the correct direction to move in with regard to reproductive autonomy, 
I am free to vote my constitutional conscience, um, even if there's settled Supreme Court law on point, because the Supreme Court doesn't supervise me the way it supervises lower federal courts. So another way to put that is that that vertical stare decisis we talked about earlier that's very rigid is, is particularly rigid when it comes to lower federal courts. It's less rigid when it comes to state courts whose rulings could ultimately be appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, but it's not part of, but who are not part of the same system. And the, but meanwhile, a federal judge then, now of course, it's not going to go to a lower federal court. It's going to go directly to the Supreme Court. But one could imagine a scenario where there, where there was a law and somehow it got into federal court and, and, uh, and the judge had to say, well, you know, number one, I don't agree with the Supreme Court precedent on this. And number two, I don't believe the Supreme Court does either, as currently constituted. So therefore, I'm going to rule, you know, the way that I think they're going to rule. Can they, can can a federal judge do that? That would be the analogy to the state legislature. And, and, and the short answer is no. As mm-hmm. long as that past Supreme Court decision is is squarely on point, the U.S. Supreme Court has said to lower federal judges, even if you think we are moving in a different direction, if there's a case on point. You lower court judges apply that and leave it to us to, to uh, change direction ourselves. We don't want lower court judges to underrule the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, you mentioned that that um, uh, the, there's not likely to be cases in federal court. Well, there would have been had um, uh, some of the plaintiffs in Texas uh, who challenged the Texas law had their way. They wanted to sue in federal court. But the way that Texas law is crafted in a very uh, shrewd manner there's really no one to sue in federal court uh, because the state officers who are normally responsible for implementing state law, the attorney generals, the district attorneys, et cetera, they have no enforcement responsibility for the Texas law in question here, which is why there's no one to sue in federal court to uh, seek to block implementation of the law. The law is implemented by uh, nameless, faceless millions of would-be private litigants. So that's through the ex parte young, you know. Exactly. Right. That's why the ex parte young device, mm-hmm. where you sue a state official um, seeking to block forward looking enforcement of a state law that violates federal rights. And for these purposes, we could say that violates the uh, federal rights as last articulated by the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, uh, that device is, is inapplicable uh, because of the uh, clever way that the, the Texas law was written. Okay, so thank you for clearing that up. So, there's, so um, okay. So earlier you mentioned this question about um, a promise, the notion that that a, uh, a candidate for or a nominee for the Supreme Court can't make a promise that they're going to rule a certain way. Um, so one of the thing, one of the the spectacles that takes place during this process is that the uh, the nominee goes around and meets with all the different with various senators. So, you know, these are called office visits, right? So, what about that? I mean, these these are, these are behind closed doors, right? I mean, um, you know, why is it appropriate for there to be a private meeting if you can't if you can't make a promise? Then what is there that's confidential about the meeting? Um, I, I think it's an interesting question. I, I would I, I would start by falling back on something that Akhil mentioned earlier, and that is kind of a structural. Uh, parallelism between the president and Senate. Uh, to be sure, the president vets nominees in private and asks questions. 
Uh, and so query why uh, senators uh, uh, shouldn't be able to do so. It is true, of course, that the executive branch is built around privacy concepts much more than an open legislature um, the way Congress is. Uh, but I think it's, it's wrong to believe or to assume that um, the only thing that might be appropriate to talk about in uh, behind closed doors are illicit promises about how a judge uh, or justice might rule if confirmed. There might be, for example, embarrassing uh, but harmless uh, in, in the legal sense uh, aspects about a candidate's personal background or the background of, of the candidate's family or friends. And the senator might want to get a sense of that because uh, if the senator is inclined to vote to confirm and then this thing becomes public, the senator will have to maybe uh, explain why she supported somebody who had this skeleton in her closet. Um, so just as the president will ask a nominee, I would hope, tell me anything that you might think is uh, embarrassing that I should know about before I consider nominating you. Maybe a senator would ask the same thing, and th those things have nothing to do with the track record of, of voting that, that the nominee might uh, have uh, as a justice. You know, when I can tell you, when I got the job as the dean at the University of Illinois, uh, one of the last questions that was asked of both me and my recommenders during the interview process was, is there anything in your background that would cause embarrassment to the university that you need to tell us about? Um, and I was kind of taken aback. I didn't really think about that. And happily, the answer was honestly no, as far as I knew. Um, but but those kinds of things come up in, in these settings as well. Oh, they should have asked me that question about you, Vic. <laughs> <laughs> there's, okay. there's, a reason, there's a reason I didn't list you as a reference. <laughs> but here are two other things that, that, that happen perhaps behind closed doors. One is maybe the senator isn't just seeking to elicit information, but to share information. You know, um, a nominee X, um, I want to tell you what the world looks like to me and um, my constituents. Um, and it's just a chance, as it were, to, to jawbone someone who is going, you think, to be confirmed. But you, it's just your chance to, to sh share with that person your um, vision. No promises, nothing illicit. But you know, if you had, if you were just... I've, I've told you my story about being in an elevator with a senator actually by by accident, and and I had my elevator pitch. So so um, you you just you want uh, a second thing. Maybe maybe, maybe the senator wants to uh, give the nominees some of the uh, reprints of our most uh, recent uh, <laughs> uh, article collaboration. And related to that first one, just human human getting to know each other a little bit with the cameras off um, and no posturing. Um. But one other thing, and this is a little bit more cynical, I'm a political science professor as well as a law professor and historian. It gives the senator plausible deniability um, for voting for someone, even if in her heart of hearts she, um, she thinks that the, the nominee is going to vote the wrong way. From um, her point of view and her constituents' point of view, I sort of think she can say, "Well, you know, in conversation, I really got a, a, a different um, vibe." Um, and so, Susan Collins, to pick um, a uh, an example, Susan Collins, you know, I think by inclination wants to confirm um, someone like Brett Kavanaugh because she's a Republican and um, and he's a Republican and he's nominated by a Republican. Um, president, and because actually, if you look at her track record, she generally is rather deferential to presidents, even presidents of the other party. Mm -hmm. Now, 
um, uh, she doesn't want to admit that he's a likely vote to overrule Roe versus Wade. That's going to make it difficult for her um, personally and politically, um, given um, her, 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 her generally pro um, a choice constituents in in Maine. So it might very well be that she w- wants to say, ah, well, you know, w- regardless of, of, of what you all saw on the camera, um, um, my, my, my fellow um, Mainers, um, uh, my, my constituents, you know, I, I talked to him, I, I looked into his, his um, eyes, I, I, I got a sense of his heart and soul, and, and I, I have a good feeling about this. I could even imagine it in the opposite direction as well. If a senator, for political or ideological reasons, kind of had a sense that she's likely to vote against the nominee, uh, maybe having a sit down with the nominee and saying, you know, I just want you to know, I really respect your life story. I respect what you've accomplished. I think you're incredibly brilliant. We have some differences of opinion. I'm going to have to sort through that and decide how important those are when I vote on the floor. But I want you to know that it's there's nothing personal here. And uh, I have tremendous respect for you. And whether or not I vote for you, if you're confirmed, uh, you know, and come back and testify before us, as justices sometimes do, I want you to know that I want to work with you on anything that we can work together on, uh, even though I have some thinking to do about our differences in philosophy. Good point, but that I could imagine you could most of the time say publicly, although you only have a certain number of seconds, you know, while the, while the camera is on. And, and, and you might say publicly too, but again, it might mean more um, in, in a one-on-one setting. Yes. Now, one thing about these meetings is that um, they, you know, they're private, but they're also public in the sense that the cameras are running when the judge walks in there. And the senators shake, you know, the, the photo op. And, and then afterwards, the senator gets some time before the microphone and the cameras, which is, you know, what, what they want. And they get to say things like uh, Senator Cotton, you know, for example, complaining um, about uh, Judge Jackson's time as a public defender. Now, without getting specific into, you know, Judge Jackson uh, and, and things that she may have done as a public defender, whatever. Um, I, I personally have a little bit of concern with with public defenders getting tarred with, uh, you know, with their clients. I mean, defenders, you know, most, frankly, you know, most defendants are guilty, you know, from a you know statistical point of view. Um, and uh, that'll get me off any jury when I get my jury duty notice. But, uh, <laughs> um, but. Uh, you know, it, do you think that it's that the, I, I think this is a problem because we can have, you know, other nominees in the future who, you know, were public defenders or um, and and do you think it's legitimate to draw attention to the clients of of the, of a lawyer rather than the actions that the lawyer took um, in in this in the nomination co- uh, process? And if it is legitimate, where's the line? You know, what 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 part of it is legitimate? Part of it is not, if any. I think it's tricky business to judge a a lawyer based not on what he or she does uh, in a particular role, but but who the client happens to be. Uh, Because lawyers often serve clients whose causes they may not fully agree with. Uh, and, And it's a lawyer's job to zealously and professionally and vigorously represent whoever the client is that they happen to have. When I worked at the law firm, uh, I'm sure I made arguments on behalf of clients that I didn't even believe myself. 
Um, uh, and yet it was my job to present as good an argument as I could think of for that client who was, was counting on me. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you know, people don't have to uh, represent everybody. Um, you know, everybody's entitled to a good criminal defense, but everyone's not entitled to have whichever lawyer they want in the world represent them. So people do make choices. Personally, I think, you know, being a, a public defender, and again, forget Judge Jackson, I don't know what she did as a public defender, but, that, but being a defender in general is a perfectly legitimate, noble um, career decision. Uh, but just to put a fine point on it, you know, I'm not sure that if I were a senator, I would be um, generous in, uh, in evaluating as a nominee someone who chose to uh, represent people uh, associated with the January 6th mess or people who were pressing really uh, weak, if not technically dishonest, claims of election manipulation after uh, November. Um, I would say maybe that's not a case you had to take. So why did you take it? You know, as a doctor myself, uh, you know, I, I have a little bit different perspective on it because we took everybody, you know, that, that walked through the door. And technically, you don't have to. Um, for example, you know, you have doctors that are, you know, engage in concierge medicine, where, you know, you limit your practice, you got to pay a certain amount up front. If you can't pay, you don't get into that practice. Um, that's a particularly cynical, you know, uh, way to decide who, who's your patient and who's not. But the point is that you can have a, an approach to your job that may not be, that might be yours. It might say, okay, I'm going to take most clients, but not those whose political actions for which they are on trial, their political and criminal actions, for which they are on, potentially criminal actions, for which they're on trial, are particularly repugnant to me. Um, or you could have a general philosophy, I'm going to take every case. And if yeah. you had that philosophy, then I don't think you can be criticized if, if, you know, if you were consistent with it, then I, then I don't think you can be criticized for the individual clients that you have. And let's introduce another distinction here um, connected to um, earlier podcast episodes between um, litigants who seek to use the law as a sword, in effect, plaintiffs, um, and litigants who seek to invoke the law as a shield because the government is, is coming after them in certain ways, especially if they're um, uh, uh, being prosecuted criminally. Vic said that when he was in private practice, presumably at Gibson Dunn, he had various clients. Remember, he's not the senior partner. The senior partner is actually assigning him. He, and he, he generally has to take cases because he's in a, he's in an organization can take the, the cases that um, he's assigned. And he said, well, it's possible. It's probable that I made some arguments that I didn't even think were in the end persuasive, but who was he making them to? He was making them to a judge, a court. So the judge and the court would, would decide what the court thought was the best set of arguments. And, and the court is going to work best when it, it hears the best arguments um, all around. And, and Vic's job as, was as a lawyer in a system. Now, okay, so he said that, but let's now introduce a, a distinction. Vic mentioned when it came to uh, litigants, um, who seek, sought to make improbable claims of uh, election fraud as civil plaintiffs, the, the Sidney Powells of the world, um, you don't have to take them on. Um, and they don't necessarily have a right to bring every 
um, ridiculous case in federal court. And you're a gatekeeper in part as a, as a lawyer. You can, you can basically say, I'm not going to argue that because I can't really, and I, I think that's so weak. Um, even if I'm not going to be sanctioned by a judge, uh, if I file, I don't want to have my name associated with such a, an, uh, a borderline frivolous argument. I have a, I, now, that's different than when the government is trying to put someone in prison, prosecute someone. Everyone at a certain point needs to, to have a lawyer to make the best arguments possible, even if they don't have much of a defense. They still need to have a lawyer because they're, they're, they're not choosing to go to court. They, the government is bringing a suit against them. And, um, and, um, and every criminal defendant actually does have a right to a lawyer. Maybe not to, to me, if I'm a lawyer, maybe, uh, but, but, but someone has to be a lawyer of last resort. And uh, public defenders actually are lawyers of last resort of a certain type. Right, um, but once you start choosing your clients, you know, because they are heinous clients, then, you know, you're going to, that's, that's necessarily going to reduce the quality of the lawyer's that such clients are going to have if they're, if they're not going to have a selection of, you know, uh, at least, at least it's likely right, right. to do it. But I'm, I'm making a distinction. I'm saying um, uh, there's a difference between plaintiffs and criminal defendants. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and, and criminal defendants, someone in the legal system has to represent them um, because um, the, the constitution actually requires that. Um, and indeed, Gideon versus Wainwright, one of the landmark decisions of the Warren Court says, even if you can't pay for um, an attorney, um, an attorney needs to be appointed by because the court can't do its job. Remember, the lawsuit is now happening. The government is choosing to initiate the thing um, and is seeking to impose a punishment on an individual. And the court can't do um, uh, punishment imposition properly, conviction properly, adju- criminal adjudication properly without hearing from the defendant. And for that, you need a lawyer for the defendant. So I wanted to connect to our, an earlier episode in which Neil Katyal chose to um, actually defend this fellow Hamdan who was being criminally prosecuted by um, the, the, the federal government. He was um, alleged to be Osama bin Laden's driver. Um, and he, someone had to defend him. And in, in Neil's situation, he actually said almost no one else was willing to. So I, I was the only one kind of left, and I felt a special obligation to the system to provide that. And my claim is that's never true um, when someone wants to come to court with a frivolous claim as a civil plaintiff, saying this election is fraudulent, that election is fraudulent. Um, so there is a difference between civil plaintiffs and criminal defendants, and it's closely akin to the distinction we've talked about earlier and even alluded to today in connection with the Texas um, litigation, um, SB8, uh, between um, sword using the law as a sword and using the law as a shield. You know, I think that... Uh... Yeah. First of all, we're talking about public defenders. So we're most, we're not talking about like legal services corporation. We're not talking about about uh, you know civil cases. We're talking about criminal. But I'm sorry, Vic wanted to uh, to, to yeah. I on just this. wanted to pull the lens back a little bit um, and kind of put together some of the things that you've been asking about what inferences it's appropriate for a senator or someone else to draw about someone based on her or his past legal experience. And as I said earlier, lawyers have roles. Lawyers are professionals. They're supposed to zealously do their job to represent their client once they have a client. And and we can talk about what choice you have over the clients you you pick. 
but because as a lawyer, your job is to represent your client, you may not always fully believe in things that you have to argue. So that's true if you're a public defender. That may be true uh, if you're a, a private lawyer like I was. It may even be true if you're a lower court judge for the reasons you described earlier, because you're bound by Supreme Court precedent and you have to make arguments and write explanations that you may not agree with, but that you're stuck with because of this Supreme Court precedent. Interestingly, one of the backgrounds where, from which that, for which that is not true or less true is an academic. So when I write an article and when Akhil writes an article, um, it's because presumably we really believe the arguments that we're advancing are the right ones, the best ones, the, the ones with, with integrity. So in some ways, it, it's, you know, nominees who come from academia might have more to answer for when they're asked about their past work, when their past arguments that they've made, because they're not able as, as easily to deflect those questions on the ground that, well, I had a role to play. I was, I was doing, uh, I was a cog in a bigger, a bigger system. Uh, and, and it's no coincidence that it's much harder to get nominated when you, as, as an academic today because virtually every, every academic is going to have written some things that are going to rub some people the wrong way. And if you can't um, uh, deflect the question because uh, you were writing for yourself and not for somebody else, then the, the, the risks of, of uh, non-confirmation go up. So, you know, ever since Bork, it's no coincidence that academics who've written a lot are, are not likely to be appointed. Even, even Justice Kagan... Um, was not a really prolific academic writer. If she had been, she would have had a much tougher time uh, getting confirmed even uh, uh, more than a decade ago. Actually, the two of you wrote an article together uh, a while back uh, in your brothers-in-law column. Uh, I think it was called uh, We Like Mike um, in support of the nomination of Michael McConnell to the Tenth Circuit. Um, so if uh, I can post it on our website, I, I'll do that. And uh, you know the, our listeners can get a sense of uh, what the what uh, uh, Akil and Vic thought were legitimate a legitimate approach to evaluating this particular candidate. Um, who, who of time. course, uh, was a uh, an academic from the University yes. of Chicago yes. and, and Stanford. Right, and he was confirmed, I believe. He was. He was on the Tenth Circuit for a mm -hmm. while. Mm -hmm. Right, and he's back in. Academia. And since Vic mentioned Bork in particular. Um, and you asked if the process, I think maybe your first question, Vic, has the process changed? And Vic said, well, television makes a big difference. Um, because, and we talked about senators playing to the cameras. And indeed, um, uh, in, 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 the, in the back room, um, the one-on-one, the, -on -one, the courtesy calls, a senator might say, I'm going to go after you really hard for, in, in front of the cameras, but pay no attention to that. That's all, you know, just for um, uh, public consumption. Um, you know? <laughs> so, so who knows, you know, all, all the, the, the conversations. Stephen Carter said, oh, it, it was nasty. Um, the confirmation process was, was nasty for um, Louis Brandeis, an early um, uh, Jewish nominee, for uh, Felix Frankfurter, another Jewish nominee, for Thurgood Marshall, um, um, first African-American uh, who won confirmation of the Supreme Court. Um, we talked about in the Charles Black episode, the great lawyer who, um, uh, as a private litigant, won the Brown versus Board of Education case and many others, and his work as head of the NAACP, the National Association for the advancement of colored people. So, 
Liberals, you know, might talk about um, uh, the not altogether smooth confirmation processes uh, for um, two Jewish Americans and an African American, Brandeis, Frankfurter, and Thurgood Marshall. But if you talk to any conservative, um, indeed, the conservative will say, oh, the liberals did it first. It started with Bork. And they Borked Bork, they being, you know, the liberals, and then they went after Clarence Thomas, and then they went after Brett Kavanaugh, and we conservatives haven't done the same things, even for academic um, liberals like um, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, a Columbia professor, Stephen Breyer, um, a Harvard professor, um, or Elena Kagan, a Harvard professor. So that's what conservatives, you know, will say. But but since Vic did mention Bork. It connects to an earlier question you asked. There were senators who openly said the following. I thought Bork was good enough for the Court of Appeals, and I voted for Bork for the Court of Appeals, but I actually voted to confirm him, but I don't want him on the Supreme Court because he can overturn precedents on, on the Supreme Court. So there were senators who openly said that about Bork. Um, one thing that I've mentioned in past um, episodes and in writing is how um, – Almost all the current justices, um, eight of the current nine, were sitting federal court of appeals judges at the time of their appointment. And the only one who wasn't was Elena Kagan, but a very judicialized position as Solicitor General of the United States, uh, formerly an executive branch official, but one who argues before the Supreme Court, who has an office in the Supreme Court, uh, not the only office, but but one office there. And and we talked about the Solicitor General's office in in the tribute to Walter Dellinger episode and elsewhere, but eight of the nine current justices were sitting federal court of appeals judges at the time of confirmation. And that will also be true um, if and when Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson is, is confirmed. Now, here's the point. Um, and that wasn't true of the court of Brown versus the Board of Education, where I think only one of the eight of the nine justices who heard uh, the, 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 the case um, of Brown versus Board of Education had ever been, um, a, a, was a sitting federal court of appeals judge. Um, and that person had also been a senator. Um, in fact, I think Sherman Minton. Why am I mentioning that? Because one thing that actually is true, if you're a sitting federal court of appeals judge, um, who's now being nominated, you've gone through this gauntlet once before. Yeah, maybe you didn't actually interview all the senators because they didn't have as much time for the, 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 the many lower court um, um, slots compared to the relatively few Supreme Court slots. But you've gone through the process. You've done all the vetting, all the, the, the federal paperwork, which is hundreds of pages long about all your financial forms and conflict of interest forms and all the rest. You successfully made it through at least once. Um, through, and through the Senate as well. Now, it's a, it's a different standard for reasons we talked about, and that was true for Bork. People voted, senators did vote for Bork for the D.C. Circuit, the so-called second highest court in the land, but not for the Supreme Court. Um, and Bork was an academic, and, and, and Vic talked about that as well. So I've taken um, his mention of, of Bork and connected it both to the other academics on the court um, in recent memory, including uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Stephen Breyer, and Elena Kagan, and also this distinction between Judge Bork and Justice Bork. And just a footnote, there, there's one other thing that some people took away from the Bork episode as a lesson, and that's something we all, we've also talked about, namely don't answer questions on the merits. Yes. He did answer questions on the merits. He did talk about how uh, uh, Bowling versus Sharp, the companion case to Brown, 
wasn't an easy case to justify, um, except on stare decisis grounds. He criticized um, Griswold versus Connecticut, the, pri- so, the privacy case. So he was very candid about his, his views, uh, and he tried to defend them. Uh, but the takeaway a lot of people had after that is there's no uh, there's no good to that. Don't answer questions about substantive uh, issues and past cases because you can only be hurt by it. Well, another so, another way you could interpret that is don't answer those questions if your answers are off the wall. You know, if you well, if if you if you if you don't think somebody. that Griswold versus Connecticut is rightly decided, I don't want you on the Supreme Court. And well, by the, the way, is, the problem is you're going to alienate somebody in either direction. Well, so, that's not a that's not a mainstream. That's not even a mainstream Republican opinion right now that Griswold is wrongly decided. I'm, I'm, uh, it is true that every subsequent nominee is actually, while ducking questions about Roe, um, said Griswold's okay, except Scalia. Who, 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 um, but 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 other Republican nominees have been willing to say, "Oh, Griswold's fine." But I am put in mind. Um, speaking of um, uh, Republicans, of uh, the famous Mark Hanna, who was a presidential handler. He was kind of Karl Rove before Karl Rove came uh, on the scene, beginning of the 20th century. And McKinley, um, right? Huh? McKinley. Well, yeah. and, and he was also a handler. For, yes, he was a McKinley um, ally, but he, he, he also, who was from Ohio, um, uh, uh, advised um, um, other handlers when Warren G. Harding was nominated for the presidency. Mm-hmm. And he told the other, other handlers, wonders. he said, whatever you do, don't let Warren talk to the reporters. They're bound to ask questions, and Warren is just the sort of damn fool who will try to answer them. <laughs> um, and um, uh, Bork was solicitor general of the United States, and he thought he was really good at at, at, at Q and A and 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 the back and forth and the cut and 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 thrust of of, of oral. Um, advocacy and he thought he could hold his own um and he answered the questions um and uh, another um albeit only acting solicitor general john roberts um uh, he was acting solicitor general under under ken Starr, um and a great oral advocate was actually much more skillful in deflecting um questions that he didn't want to answer and vic is saying that's actually the smart strategy is deflection rather than open um, engagement. And that's one of the lessons that many nominees have taken, the kind of a Mark Hanna lesson um, from from Bork, you know, don't be the sort of damn fool who answers the question. And Vic and I think that's unfortunate because we think actually there should be um, more substantive engagement. And he's told you exactly what kind of question is perfect to ask. He's not the only one. Actually, um, um, my colleague Reva Siegel has made a very si- similar suggestion why not ask them not about hypotheticals, but about past landmark decisions? You know, what did you think of of Griswold versus Connecticut, of Brown versus Board of Education, and that includes Roe versus Wade? What did you think of of Roe versus Wade or Casey? Those are past decisions in which justices, actually, except for uh, Brown, um, disagreed amongst themselves. You know, h- how how do you think about that? Um, how would you have thought about that if you were on the court? So when, when John Roberts was nominated to be Chief Justice, I wrote an op-ed for the New York Times uh, that they titled, uh, and, and you know, when you write an op-ed, uh, you have no control over the title, but this one I actually liked. It, they said, Casing John Roberts. Uh, and this is where I floated this idea. I said, here are the five or 10 cases I would ask about, and I've since updated and expanded that. Uh, uh, but you know, what's good for the candidate or the nominee um, 
is not necessarily good for the Senate or the country. So again, I well understand why nominees who want to get confirmed and presidents who want them to get confirmed and people of their party who want them to get confirmed. I well understand why there's an incentive for those people to uh, to, to clam up, but that's not great for uh, the Senate to really make an informed decision. And it's certainly not great for the American people to get to know what kind of justice someone is going to be. Uh, and, uh, and so the incentives are not, are not well aligned uh, for, for uh, in my, in my view. Yeah. I think and, it's, it's not a great situation where we, where we have the justices, um, you know, not answering questions because it might mean that they might not get confirmed. You know, it reminds me of uh, something my daughter once told me. Uh, you know, I she, uh, you know, I, I made her promise, you know, that that she would do a certain thing in order to for me to give permission for her to to do something, and she promised, and then she went ahead and didn't do it. And I said, well. Why'd you promise it? Because otherwise you wouldn't have let me do this thing. <laughs> so. The analogy I've, I've offered is what other job interview can you have? And when the prospective employer says, well, here's an episode that happened a while ago. What do you think? How would you handle that? And, 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 the, and the, the applicant for the job says, well, I can't really answer that because that might actually be relevant to something I might do on the job. Right. Um, it's just, it's just surreal. And to the point where, I know we don't want to be nihilistic, but I often wonder why we have these spectacle hearings anymore. Face time for the senators. Again, I understand why they want it, but I, I, I don't often, I don't always understand why I spend time continuing to think about this uh, since it's so farcical, um, uh, given how far we've come. Well, I think, look, our, you know, your role and and my role in asking you questions about it is to try to highlight you know, what's good, what's bad, what can we do about it, what might be better. And and by the way, I think that... So um, we've made two very specific suggestions. There's a distinction between promises and predictions, um, um, which is different than, you know, uh, other, other distinctions that you'll hear from other academics that I think are kind of... Oh, you can ask general questions, but not specific questions. Philosophical questions. questions. Not philosophy, but not about cases or something. So, so that's one thing. And those distinctions are kind of bogus, but there is... Every student in Contracts 101, which is a first uh, semester uh, course in almost every law school in the country, Contracts, uh, Introduction to Contracts, knows the distinction between a promise and a prediction. Okay, um, and second, um, it's it's basic to contract law. Vic has identified a specific question that would be really great to ask about past cases. Um, and actually, third, we've identified ways of thinking about a justice, uh, a, a nominee's past as a lawyer, as a lower court um, judge, as an academic subtle ways of actually thinking about how that's relevant to uh, the prediction, but also you need to understand the specific role that they were playing um, in making a sensible prediction based on what they did as an academic, as, as a named partner in a firm versus a junior associate, um, as a civil um, plaintiff's lawyer versus a criminal defendant's lawyer, as a lower court judge um, bound by Supreme Court precedent versus something else. And look, we can't let you know perfection be the enemy of the good. I mean, I'm glad that Robert Bork wasn't confirmed, for example, even though it might have been a, a difficult, you know, set a, a bad uh, you know precedent in terms of the the meanness of the hearing, but, and he wasn't the first, Abe Fortas, you know, when he was nominated for chief justice, those hearings actually brought out significant facts. He shouldn't have been confirmed, arguably, you know, although (laughs) it's, it's interesting because some of the, 
you know, some, I mean, for, for our listeners, you know, Abe Fortas uh, was already on sitting on the court and then was nominated to be chief justice. And uh, it, what came out during the hearings was that he had actually been sitting in White House conferences and, you know, briefing the president on, you know, deliberations. Uh, and also that uh, President Johnson, this was, whom he had been a close ally of. And also there were some financial questions, although I think the financial questions, uh, you, you could ask those same questions of some of the sitting justices now. You know, Gorsuch has taken money from, you know, conservative organizations for speaking, uh, you know, and very comparable to what Abe Fortas did. You, you've identified one other um, distinction, the distinction between an associate justice and a chief justice. What happens when an associate justice is nominated for the chief position? And are there different are there differences between being an associate and being chief, just as are there differences between a, being a lower federal court judge and a Supreme Court justice? William Rehnquist was, a, was promoted from associate to, to chief. There was a separate confirmation process in that promotion, and, and Fortis um, flunked um, uh, um, his confirmation process when he was nominated to, to be um, chief after um, while being um, um, a, a sitting um, associate justice. I mean, quick query whether... Uh, it was that different institutional role that accounted for the different outcomes in, in Fortas's case, or whether yeah. uh, the politics had just gotten a little yes. nastier uh, in that time and, and more information. But, but, but it's imaginable for a senator to say, actually, I thought Rehnquist was good enough to be an associate justice, but I don't want him leading the court as chief because he'll have um, additional institutional power. That's not a, a, an incoherent position, just uh-huh. as it's not an incoherent position to say, I thought Robert Bork was good enough for the D.C. Circuit, but I don't want him on the Supreme Court where he can overturn precedent. I did want to, though, reiterate, especially because we have a lot of uh, folks in the audience who are um, left of center, as I consider uh, myself, and I, I think Vic considers himself, that Mitch McConnell just today earlier said, I want you to understand that, you know, from my, my point of view, the, the liberals have been nastier to our nominees, you know, and he mentioned Thomas and Kavanaugh, and he said, and I won't uh, actually uh, be, be nasty. I said, I haven't decided about Judge Jackson, but, you know, it's going to be a very courteous process. And there may be some other, you know, dynamics here, the first mm-hmm. black woman nominee and, and, and all the rest. Um, mm-hmm. um, uh, and the optics would be particularly ugly, but he said, oh, that didn't stop actually people from going after Clarence Thomas. And he remember he 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 said this was a high tech lynching and and oh we saw a lot of anger in Kavanaugh um, who who they went after. He um I, I don't think that McConnell mentioned Bork, but if you ask any conservative um, about the nomination process, I promise you, you know, they will talk about Bork, uh, uh, Bork because they they still remember that. Certainly, anyone over the age of forty will invoke Bork. Uh, Andy, one thing I wanted to mention, too, uh, many of these things that Akhil and I have been talking about do go back to some, uh, the, the Justia column that we wrote, or a fine law at the time. Uh, I, I wrote a much longer, elaborate essay building on a lot of these things uh, about 2010, I think it was, in the Hastings Law Journal. I'll send you the link to that from SSRN. Um, in fact, the title of that, I think, is a primer on how to improve the confirmation hearings and process. So um, some of your listeners may be interested in skimming that as well. Absolutely. We'll post that on the, uh, on the website with your permission. And speaking of uh, law articles and SSRN, um, you know, our, the two of you have been collaborating, as I've alluded to, on a very important article. Um, so why don't you tell me a little bit about the article, uh, Vic, how you, you know, wh- and what's, you know, caused you to, to write it at this time? 
Um, so the article takes on this uh, theory that was kicking around in the Bush versus Gore uh, opinions, uh, and that I had actually given given some thought, giving some thought to prior to the 2000 election. I actually wrote an article in 1999 on this big topic um, uh, that then came up in Bush versus Gore, and the question is what to make of the Constitution's use of the word legislature of the states in various places in the Constitution, in particular in Articles 1 and 2 that relate to federal elections. Article 1 relates to congressional elections. Article 2 relates to the selection processes for members of the so-called Electoral College. In both of those provisions, the word legislature of the state is used, not just state generically. Um, uh, and there is there, there are some people who think that because the word legislature is used specifically, that means that the enactments of a state legislature, the state statutes that the legislature passes, have to be implemented essentially literally without regard to how they might violate the constitution of the state that created that legislature without regard to how the courts of that state generally interpret statutes um, uh, to harmonize with the state constitution. Uh, and, and so this theory is that this is no longer state law. This is now federal law because articles one and two uh, deputize the legislatures of the states and somehow empower state legislatures to be free uh, from untethered from the uh, state constitutional limitations, uh, even though they are creatures of state constitutions and state governments to begin with. And this is something that came up in Bush versus Gore. It came up again in um, the lead up to the 2020 election, where uh, three or four justices um, uh, indicated some appeal, uh, some, some uh, uh, attraction to this theory. Uh, and then it came up again in recent weeks because Republicans in uh, North Carolina and Pennsylvania invoked it in uh, emergency applications to the U.S. Supreme Court to try to draw the U.S. Supreme Court uh, into invalidating decisions that had been made by the state Supreme Courts that uh, uh, sought to enforce the state constitutions in Pennsylvania and North Carolina uh, to rein in uh, aggressive partisan gerrymandering uh, in congressional districts done by the legislatures of those states. And so the article that Akhil and I have, have written really um, exposes what we think are the fallacies of this uh, argument, both as an originalist, textualist matter, uh, uh, secondly, in terms of what the, the practice of state legislatures has been in, in invoking and enlisting state courts to help administer uh, federal elections, so even if state legislatures deserve special respect, you respect them by respecting their decision to enlist state courts. And then third, this theory has been repudiated by the Supreme Court um, for about 100 years, most forcefully in two cases dating to uh, uh, 2015 uh, and, then, uh, and then just a few years ago. Uh, and yet it's not going away. Uh, and so we would like to put it to rest once and for all. So I think that uh, from a layman's point of view, the situation that we're faced with here is you have a state that ha that is required to, the state legislature is required to promulgate certain regulations about the elections. 
you know, when, what, you know, what time, you know, when can your absentee ballot get in by, you know, various rules. And so the legislature, uh, meaning, you know, to begin with, the, you know, the state senate or the state, you know, uh, House of Representatives or equivalent, state assembly, um, passes a law that uh, fulfills that obligation. And let's say they pass a ridiculously unconstitutional law under the state legis- state constitution. You know, uh, something that, 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 you know, Pennsylvania passes a law that is clearly violative of the Pennsylvania state constitution. So someone sues and it goes to the, to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court and they say, this is, you know, no, you can't do this. It violates our constitution and you are a creature of the constitution, Pennsylvania state legislature. You were not created by the federal constitution. In fact, you may have even existed before the federal constitution. Um, and therefore, we're saying, no, you can't do that. And now the Supreme Court, or at least under this theory, is saying, no, the legislature is not subject to review by the state constitution, uh, by, by the state uh, Supreme Court, um, because of this word legislature in the constitution. And that's, that's the essence of it, that, that uh, under a hard version of this, uh, of this theory, uh, that the use of the word legislature liberates the state legislature, the elected body in the state house, uh, from the constraints of the state constitution and the the state courts that that uh, interpret state laws and uh, interpret state constitutions. Akil, you want to jump in? Yeah, we're going to come back to this in in uh, later episodes, and actually, maybe next week, Vic, if you're you're free, we can actually also come back to. Um, the nomination process, um, uh, uh, Senate confirmation process, because we'll actually have um, some 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 re- some hearings, and we'll, and we'll be able to hear the exchanges and 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 uh, see what we think about all that. But just to tease up uh, for the audience, our, our future episode where we're going to talk more about this ISL theory, this independent state legislature theory, um, to see how hugely consequential the issue is um uh, and and vic was the one who wanted to write this piece you know and and he's the lead author on it and and i was saying gee i thought i got out of writing law review articles 20 years ago and then i'm 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 doing books now and he says no this is really important we got to set this to to rest once and for all because because um the 2024 election could hinge on it. And he's right about that. So just to explain to the audience briefly, and we'll come back to it then in a future episode, why they have to tune in to that subsequent episode. Uh, Think about um, several really important states whose legislatures are basically red. It may be in part because of gerrymandering, um, but maybe in part because rural um, areas in states often have um, natural advantages because of a uh, thing called urban clustering. Um, more, um, a very, very high percentage of Democrats um, lives in a few big cities where they win overwhelmingly. They may win the state overall. They may have a majority of the state, but they actually don't have a majority of the individual districts. They, they win big and they lose small, yeah. lose tight, narrowly. And that means even though they're a majority of the state, they don't have a majority of the the uh, geographically defined districts in the state. So take states where that might be true. Take Arizona, take Georgia, take possibly Wisconsin or Pennsylvania or Michigan or Virginia. Um, those aren't the only states, but just, just take those. 
Imagine that the generally red state legislature before 2024 says one of the following two things. A, we're not even going to let the people of our state vote for president. We're going to pick the electors ourselves. Even though there's something in the state constitution that says the people of the state of X will pick presidential electors. So we're going to disregard that. We're going to pick electors ourselves. Um, oh, or B, the, the state legislature says, oh, we're going to let voters vote. Um, but we, the state legislature, for, for president, but we, the state legislature, will decide who really won the popular vote. Um, not the regular elected officials under our state constitution, not the state judges under a state constitution who are ordinarily involved in the uh, ele- um, electoral counting process. We, the state legislature, are going to do this in violation of the state constitution because we're the independent state legislature. So under either of these um, uh, possibilities, that the state legislatures in these key states would have red legislatures but purplish or blue presidential electorates. Oh, well, if they could pick the electors themselves or, in fact, let the people vote, but then do whatever they want after the people voted. Oh, friends in the audience, that could have pretty significant implications for the 2024 election, you see. And, and maybe, therefore, the fate of the world were Donald Trump to try to make a comeback and, and try to actually um, win the states of, uh, that he lost this last time around, um, like Georgia and Arizona and Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania and Virginia. So, so stay tuned, audience. This is this might seem like a, just very, very technical stuff, um, and it is, but it's also very, very consequential stuff. Yeah, I agree completely, and that's that's what you know. I I had the privilege or duty to read this article several times and you are uh, thanked, uh, you know very prominently in the, in the thank you <laughs> and i even made a little contribution of one theory that was uh, that actually appears in the article and we will and we will talk about that um when we return um to, to this issue um uh, in and, that future episode and notwithstanding the fact that they're listening to to, to me on this it's a good article so <laughs> um and now it's on ssrn so it's going to it's going to appear in the in the supreme court review journal issue uh later this year which is very prestigious and it's peer-reviewed by uh law law faculty which is different from most law reviews which are peer, which are reviewed by students. Not nothing against the students, but this is, you know, a higher level of, of review. It's very prestigious, and that's a measure of just how important this article is. So, okay, so we will post this article on the on the website in its current form. Of course, you should still read it when it comes out in the Supreme Court review. There's some. St- well. There's still some tweaks we need to make. I found a few. Uh, I found a few words we need to change uh, even today, Akil. Okay. Oh joy. <laughs> <laughs> and I okay. Well, I was that's a perfectionist. Okay. Yes. So anyway, so the, so uh, you know, audience, you're you're hearing about very very important developments, um, you know, early on, and uh, I encourage you to to read this article and in any event uh, to tune in when we go into more detail about it, and I uh, I submit that you will be persuaded. Um, anyway, uh, next week uh, we'll probably be reviewing some of the events of this week when these hearings uh, take place. And we'll get more into the into the ISL article. So lots more good stuff to come. Thank you. And thank you very much to Professor and Dean Vic Amar. Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed it.